Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Ann Arbor, Michigan is home to one of the most beautiful college campuses in the country with one of the best reputations. Gene Roddenberry studied there, so did Wayne Brady and Madonna, and a bunch of Pulitzer Prize winners whose names aren't as well-known, but who were certainly accomplished. When the University of Michigan recruits new students, those names come up pretty often. But there's one alumnus the university doesn't seem to flaunt. In 1923, a 17-year-old boy named Richard Loeb not only graduated from UM, but he set a record. He was the college's youngest graduate in history. This was a kid who was so smart, he had graduated high school at age 14. If he'd lived up to the potential he clearly had, maybe UM would have named a building after him. Instead, officials there act like he never existed because the year after graduation, Loeb became one of the most notorious killers in the world. There are very few firsts and mosts in history. Tonight we mark the anniversary of one of those, the so-called crime of the century. It happened right here in Chicago in a home near the one owned by the Obamas. And like any compelling crime story, there is a twist. Richard Loeb didn't work alone. Around 1920, he met another boy nearly the same age, about seven months older, named Nathan Leopold. The two had an uncanny number of similarities. They were from very wealthy backgrounds. This is Paula Fass, an award-winning author and professor at the University of California at Berkeley. One of her books is called Kidnapped, Child Abduction in America. And so they came from this very upper-crust Chicago neighborhood, and they'd gone to the best private schools, and not only that, but they were clearly very precocious intellectually. Leopold wasn't a record-breaker when he graduated high school at 15, but he was nationally regarded as an expert ornithologist. That's someone who studies birds, and was proficient in 15 languages. He graduated college around the same time as his friend Loeb, though Leopold's alma mater was the University of Chicago. These were kids raised in mansions. Their parents were incredibly loose with the purse strings. If the kids wanted something, they simply asked and their wish was granted. They both had access to cars in 1924. I looked it up. There were 17 million people with car registrations that year while the population was 114 million. That means only 15% of the population had a car, and these two teenagers were among them. Leopold's was a red Willis Knight, which newspapers at the time said cost about $2,100. 
That's $33,000 in today's money. When the two first met, they didn't click right away. These two were very different from each other, very different, psychologically, personally, emotionally, intellectually. Their backgrounds might have been similar, but their personalities were anything but. Loeb was charming and quick to smile. Leopold, on the other hand, was standoffish. He had a closed, brooding look about him, accentuated by a near unibrow that gave him a dark look. Their upbringings weren't identical either. Loeb was the son of a wealthy lawyer. Alfred Henry Loeb had retired as vice president of the Sears, Roebuck & Company. Sears, of course, is still around today. It doesn't have the high-end sheen that it had in the early 1900s, but it was a hugely successful mail-order catalog company back then. Physical stores started appearing in 1925. Alfred and his wife, Anna, had four children. Richard Loeb was third in line. He'd been a fairly sickly child, catching mumps and measles and whooping cough, which meant he was stuck inside a lot. When he was four, his family hired a governess named Emily Struthers, who would become an incredibly strong force in his life. She caught on quickly that Loeb was quite smart, so she pushed him academically. She tutored him herself and admonished him when he wanted to go outside and play with other kids. She was mentally domineering and manipulative, feeding into his paranoia that he was the least liked of his parents' children. Loeb's means of escape was his imagination. He grew up reading detective magazines and pretending to be both lawman and criminal. He supposedly made up hand signals that he would flash to an imaginary gang while he walked around town. His parents seemed to see none of this. All they saw was a smart kid destined for great things. When Loeb graduated from the University of Michigan, his father was so proud of him that he built a miniature nine-hole golf course on their property at 5017 Ellis Avenue. That land also had a tennis court. Leopold, however, wasn't nearly as charming. Leopold's a more complicated case. I think he was preyed upon by Loeb. He was a junior named after his father. Leopold Sr. had worked as president of the Manitou Steamship Company before buying the Morris Paper Mill. Leopold Sr. married a woman named Florence Foreman in 1892. The couple had three children. Mike and Sam were Nathan's older brothers. Whether it's true or not is impossible to know, but Leopold's parents said he spoke his first words at four months old. Leopold was gifted, a child prodigy even. Academics just seemed to come more naturally to him than Loeb even. But then, so did arrogance. Unlike Loeb, Leopold wasn't raised mostly by a governess. He apparently loved his doting mother, who called Nathan by the nickname Babe. She died in 1921 when Leopold was 16. After Leopold graduated from the University of Chicago, he set his sights on law school and was already teaching ornithology. Everyone assumed he would have a brilliant career. 
Loeb and Leopold eventually warmed up to each other, in part because they bonded over a shared fascination with crime, which actually might ring familiar to listeners of podcasts like this. The thing was, though, that they weren't just interested in reading about crime or trying to solve the puzzles a whodunit presents. They were both fascinated with the idea of committing crimes. Loeb started stealing things young and became a master at lying to cover his tracks. Once he and Leopold joined forces, things went up a notch. It started with shoplifting and burglary, some vandalism, and then it escalated to a little arson. They kept getting away with it, so the crimes kept escalating bit by bit. That they were sexually attracted to each other only added fuel to the already volatile relationship. Both had had sex with girls before, and both seemed pretty meh about it. And that was a tough thing to admit in the early 1900s when being gay would have caused a scandal for their affluent families. Certainly they had some kind of physical erotic relationship, which was portrayed at the time as a kind of master, uh, master-slave relationship between Loeb and, and Leopold. The two were like magnets of opposite poles. Soon they were upping the stakes of their illegal adventures, though Leopold was getting impatient. On the way back from robbing Loeb's University of Michigan fraternity, a long drive that only netted them some $80 in a typewriter, Leopold complained that their escapades were just too small scale. Looking to appease him, Loeb got an idea. What if we up the stakes? That's when another young boy entered the story. His name was Bobby Franks. How Bobby Franks entered the scene was heartbreakingly happenstance. Unlike Leopold and Loeb, he wasn't a loner. He was bright, but not a prodigy. He came from a wealthy family living in the same rich neighborhood, and he also had a prominent father. Jacob Franks was a retired industrialist who'd once been president of the Rockford Watch Company. He was respected in academic circles, having served as president of the Chicago Public Library. His wife was a woman named Flora, who gave birth to three children, a girl named Josephine and two boys, Robert and Jacob Jr. Bobby Franks was all 14. He was living in the same community, going to the Harvard School, which was the same school that Nathan Leopold had attended. Uh, and, you know, he was a promising young student, and his life just gets snuffed out. Paul Durica is the director of exhibitions at the Newberry Library in Chicago. He started giving walking tours of this case back in 2008 while still a graduate student. They got so popular that the library asked him to do it for them. So the, the story of that case maps very well onto the neighborhood in Chicago, Kenwood. And you can actually kind of tell most of the story just by kind of walking in almost like a sort of like four block area. The Franks lived in a stately 10,000 square foot home on South Ellis in Chicago's Kenwood neighborhood. A little boy went to sleep in his house for the final time. His house, that mansion, a rare, real, still-standing relic of Chicago crime history. 
Bobby was familiar enough with Leopold and Loeb that he'd say hello when he saw them. He'd even played tennis at Loeb's house before. In fact, they were distant cousins. That's why, on May 21st, 1924, Bobby was willing to get into a car with Leopold and Loeb, who had pulled up alongside him as he walked home from school. It was about 4.15 in the afternoon. They picked him up and asked him if he wanted a lift home. He never made it home. The next morning, when the body of a young boy was discovered stuffed into a culvert beneath the Pennsylvania Railroad tracks at 118th Street, it wasn't immediately clear whose it was. The man who found him was Tony Minky, who spotted something odd near Wolf Lake out of the corner of his eye as he walked to a watch repair shop. It would be a sight he'd never forget. Clearly, whatever had happened to the corpse was murder. The body was nude, the face and genitals deformed by acid. Minky found a policeman, and an inquest was underway. Investigators scoured the area around the culvert where they found a wool sock and a pair of glasses. Now, meanwhile, across town, a man who called himself George Johnson called Bobby's mother and assured her Bobby was safe and that a letter would arrive soon to explain everything. At noon the next day, Jacob Franks received that typewritten ransom note, which began, quote, As you no doubt know by this time, your son has been kidnapped. Allow us to assure you that he is, at present, well and safe, end quote. The kidnappers then said they wanted $10,000, which was a paltry sum for Jacob Franks, who was worth about $4 million. Though the kidnappers had insisted police not be notified, Jacob Franks was no dummy. He and his lawyer, Samuel Edelson, of course discreetly notified police. Franks was fully prepared to pay the ransom. He had actually gathered the money as directed and the denomination specified and got a phone call that afternoon instructing him to hop in a yellow cab that would be sent to him and then go to a drugstore on 63rd Street where he and the kidnappers would meet up. It was supposed to be really simple. The money would be exchanged and Bobby's life would be saved. It turns out that having your son kidnapped is pretty traumatizing, which made it hard for Frank to even think clearly. He forgot the address he was supposed to go, which stalled things. While he was still at home, one of the kidnappers called the drugstore at 1465 East 63rd Street and asked for Mr. Franks. Percy Van de Bogert, a druggist who had no clue what was going on, answered, then checked around the pharmacy and said, Sorry, no Mr. Franks here. He did it again ten minutes later, when the same guy called back, again asking for Mr. Franks. Meanwhile, police had just broken horrific news to Franks at his home. A body had been found at 8 a.m. that morning in a culvert. It seemed to be a teenage boy's body. Jacob Franks' brother-in-law went to the morgue to see if it was Bobby and called Jacob with the wrenching news. Babe Leopold and Dickie Loeb never expected Bobby Frank's remains to be found quickly after his killing, but they thought they'd built in a fail-safe just in case it were. 
the acid to his face and genitals, well, that was supposed to conceal his identity enough to ensure it would at least take police some time to ferret out whose corpse it was. It turns out Leopold and Loeb weren't quite as smart as they thought they were, and everyone else wasn't as dumb. And that's the sad irony of this case, because the whole point was to prove that they were so brilliant they could get away with murder. This case is where the term thrill kill comes from. It's generally recognized as the first clear-cut case of affluenza syndrome. They decide to commit this horrible deed, and they do it seemingly just to see if they can get away with it, and simply for the thrill that they have from killing someone. Leopold and Loeb were so convinced they could get away with murder that they hatched a plan on the way back from the frat house burglary the two committed in October 1923. Leopold was underwhelmed by what they had stolen. No way would the theft of $80 and a typewriter make the newspaper. Plus, he and Loeb had a sort of quid pro quo going that he thought was too one-sided. There's, of course, dispute about which was more the leader and which the follower. In Leopold's version, he's the person driving the car and Richard Loeb is in the backseat. In Loeb's confession, he's the person driving the car and Leopold is in the backseat. Only Leopold and Loeb know for sure the way things exactly went down, but most sources lay it out like this. Loeb was the one really hungry for the thrill. So he often hatched their little schemes, and he'd entice Leopold to join him by promising sex afterward. I wouldn't put anything beyond Loeb, who was um, willing to do anything, use his body and anything else to get what he wanted. Sometimes they'd hit obstacles, prompting Loeb to push off the plans, which was always disappointing to Leopold because it meant delaying the sex. Other times, Loeb would engage, but less than enthusiastically. Leopold felt for Loeb something that at least resembled love. He wanted to do something that would forge a special, unbreakable bond between the two. This is how playwright Stephen Dolganoff dramatized Leopold and Loeb's alliance in his 2003 musical called Thrill Me. We can begin. I... Nathan Leopold, here I swear to aid and abet, at Rich's request, no matter what he wants, I'll give him my best. But you don't need my help breaking the law. Yes, I do. It sounds pretty spot on. So how does a pair of teens escalate from petty theft to murder plot in one October car ride? With the help of Frederick Nietzsche, as filtered through the minds of probable sociopaths. Leopold in particular was interested in philosophy, and that led him to the readings of Nietzsche, a 19th century German philosopher who'd recently died in 1900, and who put forth the idea that there was this cast of intellectually superior members of society that he referred to as Ubermensch. Leopold latched onto this straight away. The gist of Leopold's interpretation is, an Ubermensch, 
which translates to Superman or Overman, isn't just smart. He's far more pragmatic and capable of rising above the codes of morality set forth by society. The Superman makes his own rules. Now, that doesn't mean Nietzsche would have advocated random murder, but that's how Leopold and Loeb read it. Anyway, in that October car ride, they hatched a plan to kill someone at random. It had to be random, because killing someone you know well is a sure way to get caught. By doing this, they would prove to themselves that they were the supermen they believed themselves to be. They wouldn't get caught because they're brilliant in a world of dum-dums. And it wouldn't weigh on their consciences because morality is arbitrary. So there would be nothing to feel guilty about. They would snatch someone off the street and stage it as a kidnapping, knowing full well that they intended to kill their victim, no matter the response to the ransom note. In fact, the note sent to poor Bobby Frank's father wasn't even personalized because they'd written it in advance. They didn't know they were going to kidnap him until they did. And this was cold and calculated. They'd even done dry runs during the planning phase, which lasted seven months. The day they finally chose to do it, it just so happened that Bobby Franks was walking alone after school. That's it. That's the reason he was picked to die. After Bobby's body was found, the newspaper reporters were insatiable. This was an era of morning and afternoon papers, of extra, extra, read-all-about-it, bulldog editions. The case was so riveting, and with the newspapers across the country, and of course in Chicago itself, the papers covered the issues day by day, many pages deep from the front page on, even before it came to trial. Loeb actually said later that he'd started to feel a little bad about what he had done the night he did it, but when he saw the headlines, wow, what a thrill. The theories that first day in the newspaper were all over the map. Chicago chief of detectives, Michael Hughes, told the Tribune that the motive really had just been ransom. He said, quote, After a hard day's work on the Franks mystery, I am convinced tonight that it was a plain case of kidnapping for ransom, not a case of a victim of perverts, end quote. The coroner agreed with that. Others thought that maybe little Bobby was killed because some kids were upset with how he had umpired a recent ball game. Another theory was that Bobby was only targeted to inflict pain upon his rich father, who must have rubbed someone the wrong way. Suspects were floated, too. Because the ransom note had been written in such a heady way, the principal and a few instructors at an area Harvard-connected college prep school were dragged in for questioning. Investigators thought maybe one of them had kidnapped the kid for money and things went bad. Detectives also considered that the killer or killers might live in the neighborhood where Frank's body was found. For all the theories, though, there weren't a lot of clues. The sock found near Bobby was Bobby's, and the coroner assumed the glasses were too. But then Bobby's father set him straight. Bobby didn't wear glasses. And this 
is where the pieces all started falling together. Leopold's glasses he left near where they dumped Bobby Frank's body after taking a chisel to his head. The case hinged on the glass hinges, specific to only three in Chicago. Only Leopold didn't have an alibi. The frame on the pair of glasses discovered was ordinary. It was horn-rimmed and had round lenses. Google the old silent film star Harold Lloyd to get an idea what they looked like. The prescription of the lenses was also common, but what wasn't common was the hinge connecting the earpiece to the nose piece. It had been patented and manufactured by a New York company with a single buyer, Almer Cohen Company. Detectives went to that oculist and learned that they had sold only three pairs of glasses with that hinge. One belonged to a woman who still had her pair. Another belonged to a lawyer who was traveling in Europe at the time. And the third had been sold to Nathan Leopold. See, six months before the killing, Leopold had started to get headaches, and he decided that they were probably from eye strain. He went to an optometrist, got a prescription, ordered a pair of glasses, and wore them for just a few weeks. The headaches went away, so Leopold stopped wearing them. It just so happened that the last time he had worn them, he'd been wearing the same birding suit that he'd worn to hide the body. He hadn't noticed that they had slipped out of his pocket while he was helping step Bobby into the culvert. Now, Leopold and Loeb were, of course, devouring all the news coverage about the case. When Leopold saw his glasses mentioned in the paper, he knew right away they were his. He called Loeb and suggested he go to the police to claim them. He knew that area well, after all, because he really had gone there to go birding before. He told Loeb they'd be easy to explain away. But he also told Loeb he didn't think they were traceable, what with such a common prescription and all. And Loeb advised him to keep his mouth shut. Don't get mixed up in the case at all, Loeb said. Loeb had already inserted himself into the case more than once. He visited the Franks' home, talked to the father at the boys' inquest, helped detectives locate the drugstore from which the mysterious Mr. Johnson had called, and urged police that they follow every clue to catch the fiendish slayer. He was absolutely certain that their plan had been flawless, so he could afford to interject himself into the case. Because of the unique hinge, however, police were at Leopold's door within two days of Bobby's death. They had asked around and heard he had been birding in the area fairly often, so their thinking at first was just that he might be able to tell them who else frequented the place. But when one of the officers asked Leopold whether he wore glasses, Leopold said, No, sir, I don't. That lie shattered everything. Leopold's lie about wearing glasses caused the investigators to home in. He quickly tried to remedy it. Oh yeah, those glasses. Well, I haven't worn those in months. They must have fallen from my pocket when I was bird watching. But white lies are red flags to detectives. Loeb wasn't on their radar at all at first. 
But Leopold changed that pretty quickly because the cover story pre-composed included Loeb. And that story was that they had met and picked up two girls the night of the murder. They told the cops, sorry, we didn't grab their last names. It might not be a terribly convincing alibi, but they figured with no evidence to connect them to the crime, they'd be fine. But the plan that they had concocted had been incredibly complex, requiring them to tool around town, renting a car and hotel room under pseudonyms. Part of it involved creating a fictional identity, one Morton Ballard, who was purportedly a traveling salesman from Peoria, Illinois. And what they would do in, in the months kind of leading up to their kidnapping and murder of Bobby Franks is they would establish a bank account for Mr. Ballard. They would check out hotel rooms in his name, most often at the Morrison Hotel. Usually Loeb would bring the suitcase purportedly full of books from the University of Chicago Library. And they would also get into the habit of running an automobile in, in Ballard's name. That way, when they decided to ultimately commit the crime, they had this sort of false identity in place that would allow them to rent a car and also assemble other resources without garnering a lot of suspicion. The more they were out and about, the more opportunity people had to see them. They were basing it all on on, the, on this detective fiction that they had read. But it was this, this game that they constructed, which was in some ways the plotting of both the killing and the subsequent ransom demand was as important to them as the actual murder itself. It was all part of what they saw as a game, an elaborate, almost intellectual game. I would describe it, of course, as a sadistic game, but they saw it as fun. Not only did the planning go awry, but the murder itself did, too. Their intent was to kidnap their victim, take him somewhere secluded, and then each of them would hold one end of a garrote to strangle him. That way, they were both equally culpable and their bond was insured. But they hadn't counted on how hard Bobby would fight for his life. The person in the back seat kind of wraps an arm around Bobby's neck and is trying to kind of stuff a chloroform-soaked rag over his, his, you know, into his nostrils and over his mouth, while also kind of hitting him in the back of the head with the wooden handle of a chisel. Finally, they subdued Bobby well enough to be able to put him in the rental car's trunk. But Bobby still wasn't all the way out, and they worried that his moans would attract attention. And so this person in the backseat, in a moment of panic, actually pulls Bobby into the backseat and ends up taking that chloroform-soaked rag and actually stuffing it down into Bobby's mouth and esophagus. Bobby continued to fight for his life in the trunk of the car. We know this because the coroner found internal hemorrhaging. When Leopold and Loeb reached their planned murder site, they opened the trunk and found... Bobby was already dead. He'd suffocated on the gag that they'd shoved down his throat. So many people saw the boys at various points in their scheme that it'd be laughable if it weren't such a terrible story. A rent-a-car employee recognized Leopold when shown a photo as the man who had hired the car under the name Morton Ballard. A night watchman happened to notice an object thrown from a car as it sped by the night Bobby was kidnapped. 
he went to investigate and found the chisel covered in blood. Another witness had been driving by the culvert that night and spotted two men matching the boys' descriptions tromping around. Paula Fass again. One of the other clues was, of course, the typewritten note that was sent. Leopold had written notes for his law school class on the same machine. Finally, the Leopold family chauffeur sealed their fate, though he thought he was saving them. Babe couldn't have done this, he said, because the family car had never left the garage that night. He was sure of it. Well, that was the car Leopold and Loeb had told police they'd been driving that night when they picked up those two nameless girls. Their alibi was shredded. So the boys decided the smart thing to do would be to save their own hides. Each one confessed, though they both pinned the actual murder on the other. They walked them through it. They literally gave them all, I mean, they physically took them on the path. They didn't just describe it, they actually walked them through it. The nation was shocked, of course. But in Chicago, this was unbelievable. The Loeb name was famous in the city. Loeb's friend Richard Rubel told the Chicago Tribune, It's a damn lie. I'm Dick Loeb's best friend and he couldn't have done it. Why, those boys could have had all the money in the world. Why should they do that? A detailed account by Dickie Loeb was published in 1925 in Volume 15, Issue 3 of the Journal of Criminal Law and Criminology. It filled in most of the blanks in terms of the how, but it didn't do much to answer the why. Just two months after Bobby's death, Leopold and Loeb were tried for murder and kidnapping. The trial lasted four weeks. Because the defendants weren't short on cash, they hired one of the greatest trial lawyers in American history, Clarence Darrow. Darrow's probably best known today for a case that happened in 1925 known as the Scopes Monkey Trial, in which he defended a teacher who had dared to teach evolution to high schoolers in Tennessee. But before that historic case came this one. The audio you're about to hear is Darrow speaking, but it's really old and very rough. Most people think there is no cause for crime except the pure cussedness of the ones they call a criminal. But as a matter of fact, there's a cause for everything in this world. And there's no way to remove the evil without removing the cause. That's the only audio from an interview with Darrow that I could find that survived the decades. Darrow had started his career representing large corporations, and that paid well, but he didn't find it fulfilling. He started representing unions instead. In 1896, he ran for Senate, but lost. Then after that, he moved on to criminal defense. He was convinced that too many lives had been ruined because suspects often had shoddy lawyers. He tried more than 100 murder cases, losing only one, which helped him gain fame nationwide. But no case had ever drawn as much publicity as Leopold and Loeb's would. The trial portion was completely unprecedented. First of all, it wasn't a trial, technically, because there was no jury. It was a hearing 
where their intent was to save their lives, to get them a prison sentence. And it went through a lo- large numbers of physiological as well as psychological dimensions of, their, of, of these boys. Their endocrine function, which was a big issue in the 1920s, and their, their psychological profiles, their habits, their fantasies, all of those things uh, were part of this elaborate report that was presented to the judge. And the idea was that they could not be responsible because there were these psychological factors, in a sense, that drove them to it. The common assumption was that Darrow would go for an insanity defense. I mean, who in their right mind would set out to kill just to prove that they could. Starting in the, in the 18th century, there had been defenses based on insanity. But insanity was not the basis for the defense that was mounted in the Leopold and Loeb case. First of all, mostly juries didn't like the the insanity defense because it countered ideas of responsibility, which is the whole legal story is about responsibility. Darrow didn't think they were insane. He thought they were maladjusted and that they got that way through no fault of their own. So the question became how to defend them. And the defense team, which was much larger than Darrow, I mean, Darrow was the spokesperson, but it was a very deep defense team, decided to plead them guilty and therefore to argue the case not before a jury, but before a judge to try to save their lives. Darrow adamantly opposed the death penalty and, in one of the most revered and studied closing arguments in history, he laid out over three days why he thought they should be spared. If a three-day closing argument sounds like a lot of talking, that's because it is. But things were different in 1925. Today, the emphasis is on short and sweet and going viral. Back then, there was no Twitter or Facebook or even nightly news designed for minuscule attention spans. I'm pleading for the future. Not merely for these boys, but for all boys, for all the young. I'm pleading not for these two lives, but for life itself. For a time when we can learn to overcome hatred with love. When we can learn that all life is worth saving. That's Orson Welles performing part of Darrow's argument in the movie Compulsion. It's, of course, a truncated version of the three-day speech. Clarence Darrow, the real one, argued that Dickie's domineering nanny, Emily Struthers, had inadvertently robbed him of childhood friends, which are necessary to build empathy. She dictated what he did, who he saw, and what he read— he retreated into a world of fantasy because he had no other outlet. Babe, on the other hand, was just too smart for his own good. While Loeb was reading about cops and robbers and fantasizing about being the latter, Leopold was adopting an unhealthy view of life thanks to his readings of Nietzsche. Darrow said, quote, Nietzsche held a contemptuous, scornful attitude to all those things which the young are taught is important in life, a fixing of new values which are not the values by which any normal child has ever yet been reared, end quote. So their legal team was very shrewd in 
trying to invert that perspective and make them not these superheroes, which is how they presented themselves, but rather these pathetic little boys who had not ever grown out of the traumas of their childhood. Darrow, in his summation to the judge, made it even deeper because he blamed it all on the reaction of American youth to the war. After all, this was just a few years after World War I, during which some 40 million people died, both civilian and military. Even though Leopold and Loeb weren't in the war, the effects of that trauma went beyond the people who saw it firsthand. It affected how people set their priorities, how they valued life, even how they raised their kids. That they saw massive killing. And and therefore, they no longer could make the kinds of judgments about right and wrong that had previously been the dominant cultural understanding. This was not the case that Darrow lost. They were spared death by the brilliant Clarence Darrow. Darrow saved the boys' lives. After contemplating for two weeks, Judge John R. Caverly sentenced them to life in prison plus 99 years. The two were both moved to the Joliet Penitentiary. Prison officials at first tried to keep them apart, but they were still drawn to each other like magnets. And after a while, the officers just gave up. For the next 10 years, they remained objects of fascination, averaging more than a headline a week in Illinois. Then in January 1936, Loeb's cellmate, a 23-year-old man named James Day, convicted of grand larceny, slashed him with a razor. Loeb staggered from his cell into the corridor, naked and bleeding, before he collapsed. Prison physicians swarmed, as did the warden. When they realized the severity of the wounds, they called on Leopold to be at Loeb's side. Loeb was reported to have whispered, I'm all right. I'll pull through, just before he died. After the time of death was called, Leopold was left alone with the body. He washed away the blood caked on his friend. An inquiry followed to determine how the slaying could have happened, which Leopold wouldn't help, and James Day said Loeb had been coming on to him and he got tired of it. Other people have argued that this was all set up, that, that this, this, this guy had been given a knife in advance, and the idea was to kill him in prison. Dickie Loeb was just 30 years old when he died. All that potential that his parents and tutors had seen in him amounted to nothing more than family heartache and shame. He had been the youngest graduate in University of Michigan history. Imagine the dreams his parents had for his future. Leopold never quite recovered from Loeb's death. The pain he felt made him begin to consider how Bobby's family must feel. Later, when he would appear alone in newspaper coverage, his demeanor was completely different. He didn't laugh and roll his eyes like a spoiled child. He actually expressed remorse. He forged friendships with clergy in prison, and he began to pray. He prayed for Bobby Franks' soul, for Bobby's parents to find comfort, and for himself to be forgiven. 
He did good deeds behind bars, too. He taught fellow inmates and even established a correspondence college at the penitentiary. After 20 years, he was eligible for parole. He was denied five times. But then he finally was freed in 1958. He moved to Puerto Rico, got married, and lived a quiet, ordinary life until he died an ordinary death in 1971. I used tons of contemporary newspapers to report this, particularly relying on the Chicago Tribune, Fergus Mason's book, The Perfect Crime, part of the Stranger Than Fiction series, was a big help, as was a PBS episode of American Experience, also called The Perfect Crime. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at centuriespod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. Facebook page.